My name is Peter Kroll. I am one of the elders here for Grace Fellowship Church. And two weeks ago, I had the privilege of officiating my first wedding for two of our members, Chris and Caitlin Wolfgang. And weddings are usually a delightful time, a wonderful time. And since I officiated that wedding in the last two weeks, marriage has been quite a hot topic in the news. If you've followed the headlines, last week the Supreme Court chose not to hear appeals from five states wishing to keep their bans on same-sex marriage. And as a result, in those states, along with others, same-sex marriage is now immediately legal in 30 states plus Washington, D.C., I mention this issue this morning not because I plan to teach about same-sex marriage today, but because I'm actually concerned with two common Christian responses to situations like this. The first response that concerns me is that because the Bible is outdated, we can't really trust what it says about issues like this. And I'm actually not going to address this response today. But if you'd like to consider it further, you can check out the first sermon that I gave on our church principles this summer. It was on August 31st called What We Believe About the Bible. In that sermon, I talked about how the Bible alone makes us wise for salvation, makes us competent for every good work, and the Bible enables us to recognize and resist deception. That's the one response that concerns me. The second response that concerns me is the one I'm going to address this morning. And I call this the freak-out response. This is the response where Christians look at the news and they say, because same-sex marriage is now legal, we must act as though religious freedom is at an end, our society is doomed to hell, and the kingdom of God is barely surviving. Maybe you've heard some of the other news items in the last week or so. The city of Houston subpoenaed sermons from five churches that had anything to do with the topic of same-sex marriage, gender identity, and Houston has the, the, the first openly gay mayor of any major city in the United States, and she seems like she is on a crusade to make sure that churches don't preach anything against the topic. And so everyone's decrying the end of religious liberty. A few weeks ago, Wheaton College had its accreditation threatened because its student code of conduct prohibits homosexual behavior. As you hear these stories and you see where our culture is going and you see what's coming down the pike and what's happening, how does this make you feel? Are you freaking out yet? In this week's section of Ecclesiastes... As we preach through the book of Ecclesiastes, the author in Ecclesiastes 3 and 4 is going to address this freak-out response. But he doesn't address it the way you might expect. In short, he doesn't say that there's no reason for you to freak out. It's really okay. He actually says that there are far more reasons for you to freak out than you yet realize. So don't be surprised when they happen. And he's going to make two key, well, I want to make two key applications from this as we look at his example, which are going to be that we must avoid easy answers and we must learn to weep when we are surrounded by a fallen world. 
In our sermon series on Ecclesiastes, we have been studying the vanity of life. This morning we're on chapter 3. If you have a church Bible, it's on page 357. We've seen that the main idea in Ecclesiastes is that everything is vanity. And what Ecclesiastes means by that is that life on earth is all about unsatisfying, endless repetition of old things that nobody will remember. Nothing you do will last, and at the end you die. And you can't fix it, so your best bet is to enjoy it, but you can't because you can't please God. The preacher of Ecclesiastes says in chapter 12, verse 11, at the end of the book, he will say, The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. And what he's saying is that these words in this book must poke you. They are like sharp sticks, sharp nails, and they must guide you like sharp, pointy sticks. And as such, they will herd you toward the one and only shepherd, the God of heaven, the Lord God, the only source of all delight and all meaning. But in the process of poking you, of goading you, This preacher is brutally honest about life under the sun and what it's like. Last week in verses 1 through 17 of chapter 3, he portrayed the complete and absolute prerogative of God to appoint the times and seasons of everything under heaven, both the good and the bad, both the helpful and the hurtful, both the pleasant and the painful. All of these things are beautiful in their time, fitting like puzzle pieces in life as he appoints them. Now, in the end of chapter 3, we're going to start at verse 18, and going into chapter 4, he lists five extreme vanities that may cause Christians to question whether God is really in control. These are also questions that even non-Christians may raise as they try to escape life's vanity. And as the the preacher addresses these five vanities, these words that he says are going to poke you. They are going to hurt. And as they do, we must avoid easy answers and we must learn to weep. We want to close our ears, but we must hear all of the data. And the bottom line will be this. These things that he addresses are not outside of God's control. Expect them to happen in a fallen world. Let me pray for us and then I'll read the passage. Our Lord God in heaven, you are God and we are not. And we often don't understand what you are up to in our world. And we don't understand why things are so broken. But Lord, you do. And you've made these things beautiful in their time, and you will make everything right in the end. Help us to trust in you and give us your spirit to understand these words that though we might be poked, we ask that we would be driven to you, the one shepherd. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, beginning at verse 18. More, pardon me, wrong verse, 18. I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. 
For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead, who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. The first vanity that the preacher addresses in verses 18 to 22 is that death always looms. Death always looms. At the beginning of humanity's history, Adam and Eve lived in paradise. They had everything they needed and everything they could ever want. And God tested them to preserve a distinction between the creature and the creator. God prohibited to them the fruit of just one tree in the middle of the Garden of Eden because he wanted to know, would they listen to him and honor him? In Genesis 3, we discover that they disobeyed. They listened to Satan instead of to God. They tried to put themselves higher. They tried to become like God's so that God wouldn't tell them what to do. They could tell themselves what to do. They didn't want to be mere mortals, and their penalty for doing so was death. God said, I made you from the dust, 
And therefore, you will return to the dust at the end of your days. And ever since then, for every day, from that day till now, death now threatens every descendant of Adam and Eve. All humans are now held in slavery by fear of death. We know this. We fear death. It's why we count calories in our food. It's why we don't give kids too much junk food. It's why state laws require child car restraints and bicycle helmets. It's why we exercise, we go to see the doctor, we look both ways before we cross the street. Because we fear death. And in Ecclesiastes verse 18, the preacher says that God did this to test us. God uses death to test us. He wants us to see, the end of verse 18, that we ourselves are but beasts. He wants us to know that we are no different than the beasts in this way. We all die. Animals die. People die. We die. We're buried. We experience decay. We are not gods. Verse 21, he asks a question. It's semi-rhetorical. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of beast goes down into the earth? The answer, of course, is that the only one who knows this distinction is God. The only way we would know that there's a distinction is if God tells us, and so we must rely on his word as God. But that's hard to do. I remember my first funeral. It was for my nana, my mom's mom. I was about eight or ten years old. Nana died of cancer. And I was the kid who, when my parents made me go to visit her in the hospital, I didn't want to touch her or hug her because I was horrified and disgusted by her illness. When she died, we had a viewing the night before the funeral, and I didn't want to look at the corpse in the casket. I didn't understand why people would do such a thing. I was way too disturbed by the whole thing. And no 10-year-old should ever have to experience something like that. But what about you? How has death visited your life and interrupted your future? Perhaps the death of a loved one or the untimely passing of a good friend Or perhaps someone you know took their own life. Or you've had a brush with death that was far too close for comfort. See, some people see death as proof that God doesn't exist or that God doesn't care. But actually, it's really the opposite. Because death is in the palm of God's hand and God uses it to test us. And death never takes place apart from God's will. He has appointed a time for every man and woman to be born. And he's appointed a time for every man and woman to die. It's up in verse 2 of chapter 3. By all means, friends, be saddened, be disturbed, be angry that this is so, that death always looms. But don't give up and don't freak out. Those would be easy answers, but they would be unhelpful answers. Though sadness may tempt you to question whether God is either good or really in control, know this, that you have not yet reached the limits of God's power or goodness. 
Because Jesus knows what it's like to taste the vanity of death. Jesus went through it. His adoptive father, Joseph, is never mentioned in the Gospels after Jesus' childhood. In all likelihood, Jesus died during Jesus' childhood. Sorry, Joseph died during Jesus' childhood. We don't know that for sure, but what we do know for sure is that Jesus had a good friend named Lazarus who died. And Jesus showed up at his tomb and Jesus wept and he was maddened by the reality of death. He was maddened by the pain and the brokenness brought about by death. We know that Jesus, of course, died himself. And he came back from death. He broke death's bonds, overcoming Satan and the curse to free us once for all from our slavery to our fear of death. And so you have hope. Your hope under the sun Here it's in Ecclesiastes, verse 22. I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. You see, your hope under the sun is that you can know your place. God has you exactly where you are. There is nothing that has happened in your life that is by chance, that is by mistake, or that is random or out of his control. You know your place and you're willing to stay there. And God can enable you to rejoice in your lot. You can delight in what God hands you. This may mean a long life or it may mean premature death. It may mean pain and suffering or lost loved ones or it may mean sweet companionship for decades. But whatever it is, it's from the hand of God. That is the first vanity, that death always looms. Vanity number two, oppressed people will go uncomforted. Oppressed people will go uncomforted. There's a lot more suffering out there in the world than just our own. And so in chapter 4, verse 1, Solomon sees all the oppressions that are done under the sun. Two times he repeats, these oppressed people have no one to comfort them. They have no one to comfort them. The oppressed have nothing but tears and the oppressors have nothing but power. And the tears and the power keep multiplying. These facts have always been true. They have never changed, and they will continue to the end of history. Israelite kings after Solomon would enslave their people to forced labor. They won't have learned the lesson from their own enslavement to Egypt. Nations like Assyria and then Babylon come in and decimate the land and force the people to relocate and be oppressed. The Greek empire would come along and Greeks would have absolutely no problem culturally when grown men would take little boys to be their sexual playthings. Oppressions multiply. We think we have a problem in our culture with the murder of the unborn. But if you had lived during the Roman Empire, it would be okay for you to wait until the child is actually born and then decide whether you want to keep it or not. They would suffocate any unwanted children. Wikipedia says that babies would often be rejected if they were illegitimate, unhealthy, or deformed, if they were the wrong sex or too great a burden on the family. Think of all the oppressions that we have seen through history. You can think of feudalism, of abuses of spiritual authority, centuries of kidnapping Africans and selling them into mistreatment, communism, the Holocaust, patriarchalism, Apartheid, Joseph Coney abducting children to become sex slaves and child soldiers, the use of chemical weapons in Syria, beheadings of Western humanitarian workers by ISIS in Iraq. 
Have you struggled with the existence of oppression and the apparent lack of God's hand in it? Because if so, you're not the first one. Have you ever thought, like the preacher here in verse 2, that it would be better to be dead than to be alive? And even better than both would be to have never been born. Parents, have you ever felt guilty for conceiving children and bringing them into the world when there are so many other children out there who are suffering under the hand of oppression? By all means, friends, be saddened, be disturbed, be angry that these things are so. Please consider what part you can play, whether foster care or adoption might be something for you. God wants you to consider. But whatever you do, please don't give up and don't freak out. Those things would be easy answers, but they would be unhelpful answers. Though sadness may tempt you to question whether God is either good or really in control, you have not yet reached the limits of God's power and goodness. Because Jesus knows what it's like to be oppressed and uncomforted. Because he hung on a cross, despairing, suffering, dying. And his own father turned away and rejected him and left him there, uncomforted to be exposed to the elements and suffocated to death. He was being punished for things of which he was not guilty. Your hope under the sun is this. Death is truly better. Just like he says in verses 2 and 3. Death is better. The New Testament says it. To live as Christ, to die is gain. But you see, that's our hope. That death will actually make things better in the long run. In Psalm 56, verse 8, the psalmist says, You, O God, have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? See, God knows every tear that goes uncomforted, and he stores it up, he hangs onto it in his bottle, and he writes it in his book, and he will make it right someday. Be assured of that. Vanity number two is that oppressed people will go uncomforted. Number three, Envy and laziness rule the workforce. Some people work only to compete with others, and other people won't work. We should expect both of these things in a fallen world. Verse 4 of chapter 4, he talks about those who work hard because of their envy of their neighbor. In verse 5, he talks about the sluggard, the fool who folds his hands, who won't work, and he consumes himself. He destroys himself. This is why good students often hate group projects because the envious will try to undercut you and in so doing, they will undercut themselves and the lazy won't pull their own weight on the team. And students, I want you to know this, that you're going to get deep into your major and you will, if you haven't already, some of you already have gotten deep in and you've started learning great things, you'll begin to see how you might be able to make a difference in the world in science and technology or medicine or agriculture or nutrition or speech therapy or the arts, you'll see how these things could be so much better than they are. Humanity has done some truly great things in the past and the best things remain yet to be done. But what's going to happen is this. You'll graduate and you'll enter the workforce and you'll experience unmotivated, incompetent people. You'll experience micromanaging bosses cubicle farms and bureaucracies, 
performance reviews that do little to review one's actual performance, evaluation metrics that measure all the wrong things, policies and procedures and red tape. Let me give you an astonishing statistic. Of all the people you ever relate with on a professional level, 50% of them will be below average in what they do. Don't be shocked when you hit that 50% and when envy and laziness decreases people's competence. I try to prepare my children for this while they're young. Whenever they ask me to be excused from the dinner table, I tell them they can be excused if they fill out their application and submit it in triplicate and their people can get in touch with my people and they submit the references and resolutions and they and I get this tone and they know when I'm joking and they just leave. They walk away. But I'm trying to prepare them for bureaucracy. By all means, be saddened, be disturbed, be angry that these things are so. But don't give up and don't freak out. Those would be easy answers but unhelpful answers. Though your sadness may tempt you to question whether God is either good or really in control, you've not yet reached the limits of God's power or goodness. Jesus knows what it's like to be let down by envious incompetence. He was on the way to Jerusalem to die for the sin of the world. And his top people, his disciples, were jockeying with one another for position over who would be the greatest and who would get to sit at his right hand and at his left hand. Those who were really jealous of Jesus' following planned and executed a plot to have him killed. Jesus knows what these things are like. Your hope under the sun is in verse 6. God has given you what you have. God has given you your teammates, your employees, your bosses. And better to have one handful of quietness, better for you to be content with where God has you, than to have two handfuls of toil and striving after wind, fighting against your circumstances. The third vanity is envy and laziness rule the workforce. Number four. Vanity number four. Loneliness is an unhappy business. Loneliness is an unhappy business. This is in verses 7 through 12. He sees another vanity under the sun, verse 7. There's this person who's working hard, There's no end to all his toil, but he has no son or brother to share it with. And he doesn't even stop to ask himself the question, why am I working so hard and depriving myself of pleasure? And then he uses this vivid image, this vivid conclusion, the end of verse 8. This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Loneliness is an unhappy business. You see, when God created the world, the Before there was any sin, the only thing that was not good was that the man was alone. And the creation was not complete until man had a companion, a helper suitable for him. And so loneliness is a perpetual vanity. And those who experience it often question God's power and goodness. Look at the extent of the vanity of loneliness here. In verse 10, You could fall, get sick or injured, and you're falling. Your sickness is worse if there's nobody there to help you. In verse 12, you can be robbed or taken advantage of if you're alone on the street. Verse 8, we saw that some try to numb the emptiness of loneliness with workaholism. 
In verse 11, we see that if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? Some waste away in nursing homes with no visitors, and they deteriorate into bitterness and a self-fulfilling mean-spiritedness. They have no one to lie down with them. My friend Ricky's grandfather just passed away after 64 years of marriage. I can't imagine how hard it would be for this poor widow to adjust again to singleness after 64 years with her husband. But how much harder would it be for those who never even get married, though they want to? Might be tempting to feel like God doesn't care, but such pain is a part of life in a fallen world. Loneliness is an unhappy business. By all means, be saddened, be disturbed, be angry that these things are so. But don't give up and don't freak out. Those would be easy answers, but unhelpful answers. Though your sadness may tempt you to question whether God is either good or really in control, you have not yet reached the limits of God's power or his goodness because Jesus knows what it's like to feel lonely. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he was crucified, he was praying to God and he was in such agony knowing that his death was coming that he was sweating drops of blood. And he took his three closest friends to be there with him for one hour. And three times after going a little part away to pray, he would come back and they were sleeping. And he went away and he came back and they were sleeping. And he went away and he came back and they were sleeping. And he said, could you not watch and pray with me for just one hour? He knows what it's like to feel lonely, to be let down by people, to have his disciples flee from him, to have his enemies arrest him, to have his God abandon him. Jesus knows the vanity of loneliness. Your hope under the sun is in verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. You see, friends, God cares about companionship. However lonely you may feel, know that God cares. Your loneliness is not necessarily a result of your sin because there was loneliness before there was ever any sin. And God cares about it. He created companionship from the beginning. And though it is fallen and broken, God is always working to restore it. And he restores our companionship with him first and foremost, but he also works to restore our companionship with each other. This is why the Bible speaks so much about care for widows, for orphans, and for foreigners, for those people who are lonely, who are alone in the world, who are adrift. True religion is to befriend those who have few friends. So while you're here, Connect with a student who might be far from home. Try to build a relationship with an international sojourner who's in our town for just a few years. We also have some lovely, delightful divorcees and single moms in our congregation. Get to know them. They're fantastic. God wants to restore companionship. Vanity number four. Loneliness is an unhappy business. Number five, power corrupts and popularity is fickle. Vanity number five, power corrupts 
and popularity is fickle. In verses 13 through 16, the preacher tells a story about two rulers. There's a king who used to be poor and in prison, but now he's on the throne, but he no longer knows how to take advice. His power corrupted him and caused him to forget where he had come from. And then there's a poor and wise youth who becomes the new king and there is no end to his current following. He is a popular ruler, verse 15. But verse, uh, and beginning of verse 16. But the end of verse 16, the next generation comes along and won't rejoice in him. He loses his popularity. Have you seen power corrupt and popularity be fickle? When I had my first book published this past year, one of the things I had to do was try to get endorsements for the back cover to get blurbs by important people to go on the back cover. I needed to find people with recognizable names to read the book, write nice things about it because it builds trust with buyers because they've never heard of me, but they've heard of some of these other people. And I got helpful responses as I tried to pursue people for endorsements, helpful responses from some, even from some who didn't have the time to read my book or give me an endorsement. But there were some people I tried to contact who probably never even heard my request themselves because it got interrupt, in, intercepted by their assistants or their bodyguards. <laughs> For example, I, some I tried to pursue were Tim Keller, Joshua Harris, Matt Chandler, D.A. Carson. Never even heard from those guys, just from assistants. The one with Tim Keller was especially disappointing for me because with him, I thought I had a real chance. I tried to work the angle that we share an alma mater. He and I both went to the same small uh, undergraduate university. I'm like, oh, he's going to remember where he came from and he's going to want to, you know, but nope, nope. Now, to be clear, I don't blame, I don't blame Mr. Keller. I don't blame these guys because they need to focus on God's calling and I'm not a part of God's calling in their lives, but it's still tempting for me to hate the vanity of the system that would keep me from being, from keep these people from being accessible. Likewise, it saddens me now when just because I had a book published in the spring, people say to me, Oh, remember me when you're famous. I'm like, Oh man, this drives me nuts. Number one, I don't want to be famous yet. Maybe, I don't know. That might change. I mean, I'm sinful. I want to honor the Lord. Number two, I've met so many people in my life already that I can't even remember them, remember them all. It's If something happens, you know, I don't know I'm going to remember everybody. Number three, if I do become famous, I'm going to struggle just as much as anyone with the potential corruption. And I get stressed out by that pressure of, oh, man, I'm going to disappoint all my friends. It's inevitable. Number four, if I do become famous, it won't be for long. The crowd is so fickle. So I, I experience this and I, I fear it. Have you experienced the corruption of power or the fickleness of popularity? Maybe a friend of yours got a promotion and didn't have any time left to spend with you. Maybe uh, the leadership of your family or your church or your company grows more and more controlling. We really have to fight that temptation as we grow in leadership. Or we see once popular celebrities like Robin Williams lose hope, take their own lives. The popularity has been fickle. By all means, be saddened. Be disturbed. Be angry that these things are so. 
But please don't give up and don't freak out. Those would be easy answers, but unhelpful answers. Though your sadness may tempt you to question whether God is either good or really in control, you've not yet reached the limits of God's power and goodness. Jesus knows what it's like to face corruption and fickleness. Jesus didn't even have to wait from one generation to the next to see it. A week was long enough for the shouts of the crowd to go from, Hosanna, save us, Lord, to crucify him. Jesus experienced it. Jesus stood before a magistrate who was convinced of Jesus' innocence and yet who refused to let him go. Power corrupts and popularity is fickle. Jesus knows what it's like. And so your hope under the sun actually comes in the next section, in chapter 5, where he says in verse 1, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. You see, here's your hope. You can still come into the house of God. God's house is available to you. When you go, guard your steps. Draw near to listen. That's better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Don't offer the sacrifice of fools, those who want power and popularity. Instead, come to God's house and draw near to listen, because the one you should fear is God, not the crowds. In summary... Life in a fallen world is hard. It is very, very hard. But don't let that shake your confidence in the Lord. Because the darkness you experience in a fallen world is not outside of God's control. It's actually been appointed by him. And the appointed time is coming when he will make it all right. But that time is not yet here. I've tried to embody two applications all throughout. I mentioned them in the introduction. Let me now make them really clear in closing. Application number one, avoid easy answers. Avoid easy answers. When others grapple with the brokenness of the world, listen to them. Don't speak. Just listen. Avoid easy answers. And when you grapple with the brokenness of the world, listen and avoid easy answers because the one who bounces the brokenness out with trite sentiments, smile, Jesus loves you, it's all okay. The one who bounces that out is just asking for an implosion in their life later. Avoid easy answers. Application number two, learn to weep. Please learn to weep because when Jesus came into our vain world, he didn't just fix things. He did work to repair. He did work to save. That was his mission. But he also wept when he faced it. And he entered in and he tried to understand. And so can we. Let's pray.